thankful. And especially those that are visiting with us, thank you for coming and being with us tonight. And of course, those that are watching online, thank you as well for being with us. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the Twin Cities, Athens and Corinth. What is interesting about these two cities, they were separated about 65 miles in Acts chapter 17 and chapter 18. And Luke here records the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, of course, had been in Thessalonica. He had went down to Berea. He came out of Berea, and then he went to the city of Athens. And Luke tells us that when he left Athens, he then went to the city of Corinth. And there are no doubt many similarities between these two cities. What strikes me in reading the scripture and studying about the people that lived in Athens and Corinth is the fact that these two cities, in many respects, are very much like our modern-day cities today in our country. They're no different. When we talk about the relevance of Scripture, Scripture is transcendent, it is always relevant, and it is very pertinent as well. And so when you look at Acts chapter 17 and, and Acts chapter 18, you're able to read about the endeavors of the Apostle Paul. Or you read about uh, Silas. And in that, you read about Timothy and other first century saints. And we find that these individuals, they were striving to the best of their ability, if you will, to make Christ known to a lost and dying world. There were many people in that first century that needed to hear about Christ. And so when Paul got to the city of Athens and then later to the city of Corinth, He's going about to make Christ known to these people. Now we notice, first of all, an evaluation of these two cities. And then we want to think about the education of the cities. And then we'll look at the exhortation of these cities. As we begin thinking about what the Bible has to say as we look into these two cities, we first come to the city of Athens and what stands out about Athens is that they were known for their idolatrous ways. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 17 and verse 16 that when Paul arrived and as he waited on Timothy and Silas, it says that his spirit was stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Some have said that it was easier to find an idol god in Athens than it was to find any one particular man in Athens. Shrines and temples, idolatrous practices were just rampant in this city. You have to understand that when we talk about Athens, it would have been best described by many as the epic center of learning and academics. As a matter of fact, it was the hub for science and literature and art as well. This is where people went to further their education, to learn, to grow. Now you might remember in Acts chapter 17, verses 17 and 18, of where the Bible talks about the Apostle Paul spending time in the marketplace. 
and reasoning with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now the Epicurean philosophers, they believed and they had the idea that life was all about pleasure. All about pleasure to the minimization of pain. And today we have many that have that same sense of mentality. The same mentality. And the idea is to eat, drink, and be merry and do all they can for themselves as they're selfish in their thoughts and ideas. Enjoy life. Why? Because in their minds, there is no immorality. The idea that the soul would live, that there would be a, a resurrection is, is foreign to their thinking. When you have the Stoics that were founded by Zeno, the Stoics believed everything was governed by fate. Oh, they too denied the immortality of the soul. And so you have people that have bought into these philosophies, much like we learned this morning how that those Israelite people bought into those ideas of what the 10 spies came back with that, that fearful report. Here, so many have bought into these philosophies, whether it was the Epicureans or the Stoics. And so Luke said that they spent their time in nothing else but either to hear or to tell some new thing. They accused the Apostle Paul of being a babbler there in verse 18. That word literally means a seed picker. And the idea was that Paul had gone around, he had picked up, picked up bits and pieces of, of information, and then he, he then passed it on as his own. Paul was speaking by inspiration, though. He received revelation from Almighty God, and that's exactly what was said in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, when he says, And I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he was not a seed picker, a babbler, by any means. And so as he talked to those in Athens, one of the things that stirred or, or piqued their interest is what he had to say about Jesus and the resurrection. No doubt it was foreign to their ears. Because as I said a moment ago, many of these people had denied the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the dead. And then you come to the city of Corinth. Corinth was filled with idolatry, much like Athens. But the Corinthians were really known for their immortality. Or, sorry, immorality. Two different words. Immorality. Now, some have said that the name Corinthian became synonymous with debauchery or prostitution. If, you're, if you were known as a Corinthian, known from being from that particular city, oh, I don't know if I would tell people that I'm from there. Bunch of heathens, debauchery, prostitution, and so forth. And so when you went into the city of Corinth, not only were you faced with idolatry, but you were also faced with rampant immorality. 
Do you remember over in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, when Paul had talked about the unrighteous not inheriting the kingdom of God? And, and then he listed, he itemized such some of those problems that were so prevalent in Corinth. He said, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves and mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, and such were some of you. Many of you were caught up in that same mess, that immorality, that idolatry. Here were people that were in what we would call a cesspool of immorality. Now I want you to think with me about our country today. And I would challenge you to go to San Francisco or Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Boston, Miami, Atlanta, Tampa, Orlando, Memphis. And what do you see? what you saw in Athens and in Corinth. Some of the same things. Think about our country for a minute. When we talk about the pluralistic mindset of our country, and I think about years ago in this country, by and large, people, most people believed in what we would call the one true and living God. And they had respect for the God of heaven. But all of that has changed, hasn't it? All of that has changed. I think we're more worried about whether or not we're going to use the right pronoun for somebody. Have we forgotten who put us here on this earth? There are a lot of people who still believe in the one true living God, and I'm thankful. They may not necessarily understand New Testament Christianity as we do. But they believe in the God of Scripture. But you add to that the numerous followers of Islam. Then you have the Buddhists and the Hinduists. And, and we're not talking about people that lack intelligence. A lot of these people are very, very intelligent. They're much like the people of Athens, highly trained in a profession, extremely intelligent. Some have been to the finest ad universities that our country has to offer. And yet just because we've been trained in a university doesn't necessarily mean that we understand the very nature of God and our need for God. Do you remember in Romans 1 and verse 22 where Paul talked about the Gentile world and he said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We have a lot of people today that are highly educated, foolish in their understanding of our origin, of what we are doing here, and of where we are going after this life is over. Do you remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 14 and verse 1? He said, the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. But notice with me for just a moment about how Paul had sought to educate the cities Paul sought to teach these people. One of his main goals was just to enlighten some of these people. He wanted to study with them. 
And he would study with these people. And you think about our people in our country today. There are a lot of folks in our country today that they understand the nature of God. No, they don't. No, they don't. Do they understand their need for God? Again, the answer would be no. Now, they might think they do. But if they're not in the Word of God, they have no clue. So what do we do? How do we offset the spiritual ignorance, indifference? Well, we have to teach people, don't we? We've got to show them the way. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19? Say, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Christianity is a religion that necessitates people being taught. Remember what John said in John 6, 44 and 45? No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God, every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. Simple as that. So Paul did what anyone trying to share the gospel would do. He sought to teach these people correctly. To the Corinthians, he said, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he, he said, For I am determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul sought to uplift Christ. But what about the nature of God? I mean, the Bible tells us in Acts 17 and verse 16 there that Paul's spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And Luke tells us in verse 22 that while Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus or Mars Hill, he said, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For I have passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. Paul then starts to identify the very nature of God. He talks about God the creator. And if you talk about God the creator, you have to talk about God the redeemer. No doubt. And Paul said in verse 24 of that text, He's God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Those people in Athens, they gave gifts to their idol gods. But the God that Paul was talking about was independent. He was and is the self-existent one. He's not dependent on anyone and God needs nothing from anyone, from any person, and he has always been self-existent. He will always be that way. And so Paul makes known to them, first of all, that God is the one who made the world. 
He is your creator. Now that may seem trivial to us. Because it's hard to imagine that here he is in the epic center of learning in that day and time. And so many people don't know God. Almighty God, the God of heaven. He's having to talk to them about something that is very basic and fundamental as the creator. Not only did did God create the world, but Paul said in verse 26, hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and had determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Who made man? God did. God made man in his own image and his own likeness. And yet there are those who would tell us that we are the products of a chance or evolution, if you will. What's the chance of that? That we're a people of chance? Sure, many of you have heard of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan wrote a book called The Cosmos. And Sagan was an atheist. By and large, he might have defined himself as an atheist and an agnostic at the same time. Whatever the case, he believed in evolution. That the world is evolving to something better. And in his book, you know what he said? Here's a guy that has gone around the country during his lifetime. He's peddled this whole idea of evolution There is no God. And then he says in his book that the probability of evolution, the probability of it being true, is my news. It's not based on facts because there's no facts out there. Now, what does that tell you? Just think about it. There are many folks in our country that go to the Harvard and Yale or Vanderbilt. Some have gone to some of the leading institutions in our country. And there are individuals who have attained terminal degrees. Now that doesn't mean that they understand what the Bible has to say about our creator. That doesn't mean that they understand the one that made them. There was a debate that was held back in the 70s between Anthony Flew and Thomas Warren. And Brother Garland Elkins was there to support Brother Warren in that debate. And Brother Elkins said that one of the strongest arguments that Thomas Warren could use in his defense of creationism is that he used the human body, the design of the human body, the intricate design of the human body. Antony Flew was world-renowned. People everywhere knew about him, but this guy late in life, listen to this, this guy late in life conceded that there must have been a designer. Now, that doesn't mean that he believed in God as that designer, but there must have been a higher power. In fact, I've heard that on his deathbed, he said, if there is a God, I hope that he'll have mercy on my soul. Anthony Flew never came to embrace the idea of a personal God, but he did come to say that he believed in the divine designer. 
So Brother Elkins said, had Brother Warren was still living and had Anthony Flew made that statement, he would, have, he would have probably flown to England to sit down and talk to him and tell him about this unknown designer and showed him the way, the truth, and the life. I don't doubt that there are a lot of folks that, have, that are skewed when it comes to the origin of the world, the origin of man. And yet Paul said that it is in God that we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, 28. He said, it is God that is the giver of all life, breath, and all things, verse 25. Do the people in Athens need to learn about God? Yes. Do the people in America need to learn about God? Yes. Do people in the Tampa, Clearwater, St. Pete, Aragon need to know about God? Yes. What about other people in Atlanta, Chicago, New York, and around this country? Do they need to know about God and to understand about the nature of the one true God? Yes, indeed. We got our work cut out for us, don't we? And then I think about the people in Corinth. Now, that was just Athens. I think about these people in Corinth and in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 5, Paul talks about the so-called gods, the idols of that day. He said, for though that there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him. So here is Paul holding up the very nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And by the way, Jesus Christ is not a created being as some religions want. To. In Micah 5 and verse 2, speaking of the Christ, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That means Jesus pre-existed, always have existed, always will exist, just like God the Father and the Holy Spirit. But I think about not just God the creator, but God the redeemer. Think about Paul in Athens among these intellectuals of his day, talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And here are these infidels. You've got the Epicureans and the Stoics that did not believe in immortality. They, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And here's Paul talking about the Son of God who was put to death and he goes on to talk to them and tell them about the resurrection from the dead. That Jesus on that third day arose from the grave to never die again. In fact, he said to the Romans and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. And so Jesus, God's only begotten Son, to the Corinthians, Paul spent some 18 months with these people. 18 months. There's 12 months in the year. So about a year and a half. What did he do? Well, the Bible says in Acts 18 and verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul talked a lot about Christ and him crucified. Now, as I think about the nature of God and 
the nature of the only begotten Son of God. When you read the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you're going to see the exaltation of the Son of God. Paul said, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 To think that here he was in the mega centers of this day, of his day, and he's upholding the very Son of God who paid that ultimate price for sin. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15? When Paul said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, his indescribable gift. He was talking about Jesus. He was talking about Jesus, the one who was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that he through his poverty, or that ye through his poverty, might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. So here is Paul again, lifting up Christ. But what about their need for God? Do these people need God? Yes. Do the people in our world today, do they need God? Are there people in this city that need to hear about God and His Son? Absolutely. Why? Because of that one word. S-I-N. Do you remember in Romans 1 where Paul indicted the Gentile world? And Paul said that these people that had worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 25. He goes on to say in verse 26. For this cause... God gave them up unto vile, vile affections. You see, they were spiritually bankrupt. And so in Romans 1, the conclusion is, is that the Gentiles are sinners. In Romans chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jewish people. And you can just imagine after having finished chapter 1, here the Jews are over here and they're listening to what Paul says about the Gentiles and they're just clapping their hands and say, Paul, get them. Get them, man. There's some vile people there. You tell them, Paul. These people are sinners, reprobates, ungodly people. But when Paul got finished with Romans 2, Do you know what his conclusion was? The Jews are in sin also. The Jews, they're in sin. And then you get to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Here was his conclusion. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, No, not one. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul indicted everyone. All are under sin. Why? Because sin is defined as a transgression of God's law. It literally means a missing of the mark. The mark that we're missing is the standard that it was opposed upon us by Almighty God. If God is our creator, does he have a right to dictate how that he ought, how that his creation ought to live? He does. God doesn't need a committee telling him how he is to operate the world. God doesn't need people to tell him how his people ought to act. God has the right, the prerogative 
for he is the creator. He has every right to impose upon us his will and his ways. And so Paul, according to Paul, all are under sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what do people need? They need a savior. So when Paul was in Athens, what was he telling these people about Jesus and the resurrection? When he was in Corinth, what was he telling the people about Jesus and the resurrection? Read 1 Corinthians 1 or 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 1 9, he said, God is faithful by whom ye were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When he wrote to the church in Corinth and he identified the immorality that was so prevalent among them, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, he said, And such were some of you. But what happened? But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What did they need? What, why did they need to be washed? Because they were in sin. Why did they need to be washed? Because they were sinners. Why do they need to be washed in the blood of Christ? So that they can stand pure and just in the eyes of God. And so I want to ask you tonight, do you know anybody that needs a Savior? That means you know sinners. Because all sinners need a Savior. You could go from city to city. You can go from west coast to the east coast. You could go from pole to pole. You can find the same thing. No matter where you go, people are in need of a Savior. Why? Because they're sinners. Look at the travels of the Apostle Paul. Look at him as he was in Thessalonica. And prior to that, think about when he was in Philippi. And then here he is in Athens and then Corinth and then Ephesus and on and on. But what is he doing? He's trying to tell these people about the Son of God who loves them and died for their sins. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 19.10? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you remember what the angel of God said to Joseph? That Mary would have a son. His name would be called Jesus. And he would save his people from their sins. Wow. Here's the Apostle Paul. And he's lifting up Jesus Christ. The very Son of God. The one who came to save us. Our Savior. But then what about that exhortation? What about that exhortation that was given by Paul to these cities? Go to Athens and listen to what Paul says in Acts 17 and verse 30. Paul has just identified for these people the one true living God. And here's what they need to understand. And you, just, you can just hear the Apostle Paul saying, warning, warning, warning. What's the warning? What's, what's about the warning? What's the warning? There is a judgment coming. Be prepared. You are God's creation. And as your creator, God is holding you accountable for how you live. You know what people need to hear today? (laughs) Warning. 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 Why? Because God is your creator and God will hold you accountable. And so here's what he said. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because God is not willing that any should perish. 
but that all would come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. Why would God want people to repent? He don't want them to be lost. God would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. The truth, and only the truth, will set people free, John 8, 32. Jesus said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, listen, why does he call on people to repent? Because Paul said in verse 31 of Acts 17, because he is appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. First of all, we have to understand what Paul is saying here. That there's a Savior who will judge us. And who is this Savior that will judge us? Well, Jesus. Jesus. Do you remember what he said to the Corinthians? He said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done. Whether it be good or, or evil or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10. In other words, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus himself, in John 5, 22, that the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, Jesus is the one that will judge you. Now, have you ever wondered why God gave that to Jesus? Because Jesus has lived in your shoes. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows about the temptations. He knows about the trials. He knows about the tribulations. He knows all about it. So Jesus is the one who will judge us. Paul said, For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Romans 14, 11. Each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Paul said to the people in Athens. That's what Paul said to the people in Corinth. And if Paul were alive today and he visited Clearwater, Tampa, Orlando, Miami, Memphis, so on and so on, you just named the city, he would be talking about the resurrection and the judgment to come. Why? Because he wants people to understand. We want people to understand that one day when you stand before the judge of all the earth, we will be judged on the basis of God's word and how we lived our lives according to this word. Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? In Romans 2 and verse 2, the judgment of God is according to truth. And there's going to be a lot of people in our world today, just like in Athens, just like in Corinth. There are a lot of folks that don't know anything about truth. And so whose job is that? To tell them and show them the truth? It's my responsibility. It's yours. For you see, God wants all people to be saved. That's why the Apostle Paul literally gave his life for the cause of Christ. Literally gave his life. He was willing to suffer and to die for the cause. And so these two twin cities had a lot in common, a lot of similarities. And as I said a moment ago, the cities of Athens and Corinth are very relevant to us today. But the remedy for those two cities is the same remedy for people today. 
It's Jesus. We have to turn to the great physician and the antidote for sin. It's the blood of Christ. And Jesus shed his blood for all of us. And the beauty of obeying the gospel is when you contact that blood, all of your sins will be washed away. Acts twenty two sixteen. And so tonight we ask the question, are you a New Testament Christian? Have you obeyed the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ of his death, his burial, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. But have you obeyed those three facts? Obeyed the gospel? Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. There it is. Can't get around that. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. That's what Paul was teaching. That's what we're teaching. And we're trying to help you, show you the way. That no man cometh unto the Father but by Jesus. And without Jesus, there's no hope. Are you a Christian? If not, why not? The opportunity is now. Everything's ready. All you have to do by faith is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. All you have to do is repent. Turn away from those things that are wrong to that which is right. All you have to do is make that good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. All you have to do is go down into the waters of baptism and have those sins literally washed away. And the Lord will add you to the church. You'll have the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins. You'll be added to the Lord's church, thus to be faithful unto the end, to receive that very crown of life, the victor's crown. But it's up to you. I can't make you. I can't force you. I can only show you. But it's up to you to make that the first priority in your life, knowing tomorrow may never come. We don't know. There is a person in here that knows